But just to kind of recap where we've been over the last few weeks, we've been in small group Bible study. We've been looking at this book called Way Truth Life, Way Truth Life, which is written by one of our general superintendents of the Church of Nazarene, uh, Dr. David Busick. And uh, it's subtitled, A Discipleship is a Journey of Grace. And I came into this series um, really excited and for some clarity, right? I, I have a stack of books. I've left them here just to kind of, I wish it was bigger. I thought it might be. <laughs> it surprised me how small my stack of books was. But the stack of books are like all of my spiritual formation, discipleship uh, methods, methodology books that I've collected over the years that just clearly talk about that. And uh, it's, it's, there's a temptation when it comes to talking about discipleship, making disciples, that it's some sort of uh, easy mathematical equation. The problem with churches not making disciples, oh, the first one is that you're not using the right method, the right method. And so we, we go, okay, well, that's, that's the A and the A plus B equals C equation. So what we do is we take one of these books we plug in the right method, and then this part is our determination to just do it, knuckle down and, and, just, and just do said method. So that plus that determination equals discipleships, discipleship. And, and, it's, and it, it seems like time after time, that's the method that keeps being used. Or it's not intended that way, but people in want of a quick fix because we're consumers, right? On a regular basis, we go... I want that one over that one because that's cheaper or that's better quality. We're consumers. We've been trained. And so we do that with church things. And, uh, and so we plug in our discipleship program. We knuckle down and we do it and we think, oh, well, we're making disciples. Consequently, we also think the opposite. Because we're not doing any of this uh, and because maybe we're not as intentional we're not making any disciples. Discipleship's not happening in our church. Both of those are false. Both of those are false narratives. Those are bad ideas. I'm just going to say it right there. But that's the idea that we come into when we talk about discipleship. And this book um, hones in on what Jesus said, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the way. As if a man is taking us on a journey, Jesus is taking on, us on a journey of grace, he is not only the guide on this journey of grace, but he is also uh, the way that we get it. He's our GPS, but he's right there along with us. Instead of telling us directions, turn left uh, three times, make a right, go straight on through past the, the barn, and then you're to heaven. He's like, you know what? I know the way. Why don't you just hitch a ride with me? And we go. That's what the duality of the word way means here. He's not only getting us to the place, but he's not just giving us directions. He's, he's actually ushering us there. He is the way. So I want to, at the beginning of your notes, it says, we believe, and I do need a little bit of audience participation. I don't ask for it often, but I need your help here because um, there's one area of grace that we talk about that is commonly confused. It's taken out of context a lot, and it's otherwise in some situations just completely forgotten at all. Uh, simply put, and here's where I need your help, we believe, so say, can you say that with me? We believe, one more time, from the youngest ones there with their noses in the books, say this with me, we believe, all right, good enough, <laughs> we believe God can work in the lives of believers, okay? 
Stop right there. We believe God can work in the lives of believers through the power of the Holy Spirit. Through the power of the Holy Spirit. In such definitive, very clear ways that we are no longer held captive to the residue and baggage of our lives. Think about that for just a moment. I have most of the words there in your notes because that's a lot. It's so compact. I only took two words out of, your, out of that thing. Power, captive. Those are your fill-ins. It's so exciting. And, and to identify what this looks like is this is the beautiful optimism of grace. Do you know what a pessimist is? You know, well, the optimist, of course, is the opposite. You know, somebody who looks on the bright side of things. Well, the optimism, the, the beautiful optimism of grace is what is, can be defined as sanctification. That is what sanctification is, the beautiful optimism of grace. Now, would you agree, though, however, all this beautiful flowery language, and it's very encouraging, uh, power of the Holy Spirit, great, get rid of the residue and baggage, beautiful optimism, but would you agree with me that even though we believe and affirm this doctrine, it's Bible, and by the way, doctrine is a fancy word for Bible-based teaching. You ever wondered, that's what it means. And this doctrine of sanctification we can only rarely point out a few examples in real life. Like, scratch your head, try to think of somebody you know. Without a doubt, that first sentence, we believe, that is their life. Always. It is rare. It happens. Maybe not, it seems a little bit more rare, but it does happen. What if there were some in Scripture, some people in Scripture that we can point to, some moments that point to the infilling and empowering of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. Wouldn't that excite you? You know, it's always good to know somebody's been there before you so you know it's possible, right? Wouldn't that excite you? I sure hope it would because today, we start today's message right after the following of the Holy Spirit on the disciples. Peter and the disciples are sharing with all the people in Jerusalem the hope of Jesus and each are hearing in their own language. And I want to jump to a portion of Peter's uh, message there. It's actually uh, verse 25. So it's actually outside of the reading, by the way. But we'll get into the reading here in a moment. And I'll read that for you here. It says this. If I can get to the right verse. And it's actually not even... Yeah, Acts 2, 22 through 28 is where this is found. It says, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by, Jesus, by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as, yourselves, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with, you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said this about him. I saw the Lord was always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also 
will also rest in hope. Verse 27, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your holy ones see decay. You will have, you have made known to me the path of life and will fill me, fill me with your joy and your presence. So Peter is just busting this out. And there's a lot more to it where he tells the entire backstory of Israel. It's beautiful because we get that from Stephen later on in Acts as well. It seems like it's the fallback. And then it points and leads all the way to Jesus. And we're not going to get into his entire thing. But an amazing speech. I wish I could have heard it myself. Probably would have been in English because that's the language I hear in. And I know I didn't do it justice. And that's okay. Maybe I'm a little bit more... Uh, animated than Peter might have been. But the question remains, who is this guy? He seems like he's got such authority to speak on this. He's laying down facts and doing so with great enthusiasm. Enthusiasm, And, and this little excerpt, it's only a fraction of what Peter presents to this massive crowd. He is boldly proclaiming. But stop and wait and think. Hey, Isn't this the guy who quit? Isn't he a quitter? Think back just a moment. Yeah, I distinctly remember this guy throwing in the towel. (laughs) Have you ever heard the story of when Peter quit? When he decided he'd go back to his old profession. Yeah, that's right. Peter did go back to his fallback career. You have some, some uh, college students, they go into school and they're like, oh, well, I'll do this for a while, but I've got to have a fallback just in case that career doesn't pan out or something like that. Well, Peter did go back to his fallback career. So let's look at that record uh, of the event to better understand uh, this default discrepancy. And it's found in John chapter 21. John chapter 21, and that John is right before the book of Acts, if you want to flip backwards there. And it's really interesting. See, afterward, Jesus appeared, verse 1 starts off like this through verse 3. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. Stop right there. Wow, that was a lot of guys and a lot of big names. We've got multiple people who have who experienced this moment. That's what that tells us also. So it gives extra strength to what we're hearing. All right, all together. And verse three says, I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Verse one starts off with afterward. It's kind of the weirdest way to start a sentence, honestly. But when we realize it's not the beginning of the book, we can understand that we have to look backwards to find out what that reference is, right? So what happened before this? Well, without too much backstory, Jesus had appeared to several disciples after his resurrection two separate times. And the last encounter in John 20 uh, to, his, to this encounter in John 22. We don't know how much time has passed between those two moments. We just know the order of events. Jesus shows himself to his disciples, and after that, he appears again, which is where we're at right here. And I'm picturing a little while at least, Peter and the others have these miraculous encounters with the risen Lord, 
And when his presence is no longer felt, Operation Fallback takes place. Have you ever felt like Jesus was a little bit further away from you than you'd like? Maybe you're just not sensing his presence and then you just kind of slip back in to your fallback job, career, mode, whatever it is. Maybe that's what was going on with Peter. And here's a problem with leadership. Sometimes you lead, uh, your leader is a bad influence. I'm not talking about Jesus, of course. I'm talking a little bit about Peter. Because when he said, eh, I'm just going to go fishing. What do the rest of these guys do? Sure, why not? Let's go. Instead of looking and hunting down Jesus and trying to connect, no, they're going to go fishing. So here's the problem with leadership again. Sometimes, got some bad influence. Peter said, let's go fishing. Paul, or Peter influenced those other disciples to do the same. Sorry, not Paul, Peter. Uh, it's easiest to cave to peer pressure when the goal is something that we know, like, or are good at. Tell me, hey, you have like two hours to do whatever you want. Do you want to sit at home and play video games or do you want to clean the office? I've already told my children I'd rather play video games and just hang out instead of working hard and cleaning an, an area of our house or something to that effect. It's it's more fun. It's more enjoyable. It's more relaxing. Whatever it is, it's not hard work. <laughs> it's easiest to cave to peer pressure when the goal is something that we know, like, or are good at. Uh, I have an example of this. You may have heard of a basketball player named Michael Jordan. Heard of that guy before? You see, he wasn't satisfied with being just the greatest basketball player of all time. Uh, when he retired from basketball, he tried his hand at two other sports, golf and baseball, minor leagues as far as he got. Jordan wasn't particularly great at either sport, maybe a little bit better on golf than, ba- than baseball, um, but he was known for not being very great at baseball. And Jordan um, eventually went naturally back to basketball. It was the easiest thing for him to do. It was natural. Probably got a lot of money because he went back into basketball as well. He was already great at it and very accomplished. And when he did go back to his fallback career, which was his primary, the Chicago Bulls, he set them up for another three straight years of championship victories until he retired again soon, soon later. Uh, it's not bad that he went back, but it was natural for him. When things weren't working out, he had his fallback plan, return to basketball. He was good at that. He, he knew that. Peter and some of the other disciples go fishing. It was their fallback plan because some time had passed and will Jesus be around or not? Was probably starting to float around the group. But something happened on that trip that was unexpected. Something that changed their lives in the middle of that fallback plan fishing trip. What happened? What happened is that Jesus showed up. We start off with verse four there in uh, in our scripture here. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, 
Throw your net on this right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. When the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals, uh, coals there with fish on it and some bread. So Jesus is on the shore. He's hollering fishing advice, get this, to professional fishermen. Hey, Michael, maybe you want to like, throw a three-pointer now. That'll help us win. Okay, thanks. You know, He's hollering fishing advice to professional fishermen. Normally, again, that probably would irritate them. We don't really get too much of a reaction in, in either way. I'm sure maybe you can relate. Uh, take something that you're good at. I want you to think about it right now. What is something that you know that you do well or that you enjoy? What if somebody decided to come in and either tell you how to do it better that you're doing it wrong or that it's pointless, you know, to enjoy what you're enjoying. Think about that. They bring unsolicited advice into your life. Um, I know a project or activity that came to your mind as well as a person who usually gives unhelpful tidbits, disguises, helping, right? However, This wasn't like the first time that the disciples had received this kind of advice from somebody a little ways off. It was almost like an inside joke, if you will. Uh, Jesus had done this before with the disciples. I mean, it wasn't a joke, but it kind of had the same feel to it. Jesus instead could have walked out on the surface of the water, of course, looked right at the fishermen failing at their job and said, what are you guys doing? You're supposed to be fishing for people, not fish. Instead, Jesus kindly shouts the, password, if you will, uh, to gently let them know that it's him and they're still all right. Have you ever had that awkward conversation with somebody and you're not really, it's kind of tense because you had an intense moment. You're talking to them and then you have this moment of levity, right? You kind of have like a little, <laughs> you know, it's, and it feels like it's okay. You know, nothing more needs to be said about the previous uncomfortableness. I kind of picture that here, right? There's this tension of uh, they, they went to their fallback plan. Jesus is like, hey guys, remember on the other side of the boat, get some fish. Oh, it's Jesus. John, the one that Jesus loved, tells Peter it's Jesus. He's like, oh, it's Jesus. Let me get out of this boat and swim ashore. So we've got the fallback plan. Well, let's forget about the fallback plan. Peter and the others experienced Jesus on the shore that day, and nothing was the same in their lives after that. And here's another little fun thing I love about this story. I always love this this detail. Jesus had fish cooking. He didn't need them to catch any fish. He had already gotten some fish somehow. We don't know. We don't know how he procured them, but he did. And he was able to grill up the disciples some yummy breakfast. There was even bread there too. Uh, uh, Verses 10 through 14 read, Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have caught. 
So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat. So remember, he, he jumped out of the boat. He swam to shore. The other guys are trying to get the fish, dragging, towing it behind with a net. And, and the scripture tells us that he climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. I don't know how he does that, but all right. Full of fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not, uh, not torn. The other time, the net actually tore. There were so many fish, by the way. Verse 12, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time. Jesus had appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. An experience with Jesus, my friends, can get us back on the right track. Truly, an experience with Jesus can get us back on the right track. The disciples went fishing. The Lord of all the earth made them breakfast. How crazy is that sound? A third time reaffirming that he was alive, not dead. It wasn't a group hallucination, which is one of the theories that gets floated out there even yet today. Jesus is alive. So back to the beginning of this message, we have Peter powerfully preaching. We have this other moment in time where it seems Peter and company have given up and gone back to their roots. They have an encounter with Jesus. Sometime later, 40 days after Jesus rose from the dead, he and the disciples are together and the disciples start asking questions. Acts chapter one, verses six through nine. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, Are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their eyes, and a cloud hid hid him from their sight." They are left with instructions to stay in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes. Jesus had made them breakfast, healed the sick with but a word, spoke truth right to the heart of each of them, performed miracles, and now it seemed he was gone. He left them with a promise, however, and a time of waiting. That time of waiting we're calling today is the gap. You've heard the expression, mind the gap. (laughs) That's what we're talking about today. We're going to mind this gap. A gap between giving up all hope and powerful witnessing taking place and taking the world by storm. What happens during that gap matters. It's not unused and unpurposeful time. It matters. How, How you and I choose to use our time in that gap is important. It will shape the rest of our story. It was the case for the disciples. The gap for the disciples was the upper room. They went there and stayed and prayed until the gift of the Holy Spirit was given. God's work in us, uh, God's work in us happens as we work with God to name and confess the elements of our past, present, and future that hinder the journey 
of grace. It's so important. You can't move past your past until it's in the past, until you've dealt with it, right? If you don't acknowledge who you actually are and that you don't really like what's in the mirror, you can't get past your present. And if you keep trying to control your future by taking the pen from God so he can't write your story you want to, you won't have a future. We've got to come to terms. The past has often left a mark. The past, we amass baggage. I talked about it in Sunday school. Uh, who, raise your hand if you love going on vacation. You enjoy going on vacation, getting out of the normal. Okay, just stand there and sit there and look at me and nod then instead. All right. Well, I do love the idea of vacation. There's quite a bit of stress that goes in preparing for vacation. However, um, one of the most stressful things sometimes seems to be um, how, either how much luggage you take with you or how heavy the luggage that you do take with you is and how much you have to lug it around. Uh, wheels are a wonderful invention. I appreciate whoever made those. Um, but your bag's still heavy when you pick it up off the ground and put it in your car or put it on above the rack in your airplane. There's still baggage and it's heavy and you're pulling it around. And I think of this when it comes to the past. It's still attached to you. We haven't laid down that baggage. Residue, I mentioned earlier, is this kind of, this idea of a dirty dish. Yeah, you probably still eat off that one, but you really want to. It didn't get cleaned properly. They've got some residue on that plate or that bowl. An honest movement towards sanctifying grace means recognizing and consecrating or turning over to God where we've been and what got us there so we don't remain stuck there. Have you ever felt spiritually stuck? Sometimes we feel that way. We don't want to remain there. We want to move forward. The fruit, this is so important, the fruit of sanctification is evident when a person no longer blames everyone and everything else for their own sin. Did you catch that? The fruit of sanctification, the evidence of sanctification working in somebody's life, the fruit of sanctification is evident when a person no longer blames everyone and everything else for their own sin. It's not that they weren't, aren't aware of the conditions that might have contributed. It's simply that they recognize their own responsibility for their own role in it. So that's the past, coming to term with the past. What about the present? Well, this is a loaded part of self-reflection. Again, back to that analogy of a mirror. If you hold up a mirror to yourself and you don't like what you see, it doesn't look like Jesus. Maybe there's a little bit there, but mm, there's too much of me in front of Jesus in that mirror. We've got to identify different things. We've got to identify our prejudices and bias, our arrogance, our ego, our guilt, our shame. We've got to come to terms with our present, identifying our reluctance to embrace the fullness of God's work in our lives and surrendering that reluctance. Hey, I don't really want to give this to you, Jesus, but I'm gonna, and I'm understanding that it's hard for me to do that right now. And this is one of the hardest things because, oh my goodness, here's the hard part, right? It means renouncing our allegiances to ideologies, political platforms, and idolatries that run counter to God's kingdom. 
at work in their lives. It's super hard. And let me tell you why. Because it's so hard, especially because these things, these very things, allegiances, ideologies, political platforms, idolatries, they sometimes try to co-opt the gospel and act as though we are doing God's work by being devoted to them. If you've ever been part of a club, uh, I've been to several Bible studies that don't really ever get into the Bible, been part of ministerial groups that it's hard to actually pray and talk together about God and spiritual things rather than activities. Are these things co-opting the gospel instead of actually uh, leading us to it? Things like politics, my ideologies, or even just the expression, I need some me time. <laughs> we may be so into those things, but we don't evaluate if they have conflict with the gospel, with Jesus. And we need to in order to deal with our present. What do I look like in the spiritual mirror? Do I look more like Jesus today than I did yesterday? If not, something today in me needs to change. Now we need to come to terms with our future. We've done past, present. Let's look at future. For many of us, when we became Jesus followers, we sought to hand that pen over to Jesus. He gets to write their story, but again, we just keep pulling it back from him. I, I think I know better on this case, Jesus. I think I know which way you really do want me to go. I don't really need to pray about it. Have you ever tried to convince yourself not to pray about something? Or have you ever said, God, I'll go anywhere you want me to go. I'll do anything you want me to do, but there and that. I'm always reminded, don't go there. Don't say that to God. That's a, it's not a good idea. The work in the gap means that we hand the pen over to Jesus and he scripts our story in every line that follows. Coming to terms with the future means we are willing to enter the kind of relationship with God where we take our cues from him. I was in acting in, uh, in high school. And uh, if you forgot your line, uh, if you were not very good in your script memorization, sometimes the student director would whisper your next line or help you out a little bit. Or the actor or actress who's really good at memorizing everything will just kind of jump on it. But you get your cues from that director. That's what we have here. I still need to participate in it but I take my cues from him. It's a posture of malleability. Play-doh, right? Clay. I'm able to be squished into what God wants me to be and molded and shaped. Transformed rather than conformed. And Jesus becomes not only my only redeemer of our story, but also Lord of what comes next. And why do we work with God on these things? Well, because we can we actually have this beautiful thing called free will or agency that allows us to love him or to not love him. And he wants us to choose him as Lord. That does mean all the lords of our past, all the ones we currently are dealing with in our present, and all of the ones in our future, they have got to hit the road. All the lords that want control of our life, they've got to go. We may, we may need to identify those things that we actually have problems with or that we passively thought, oh, I'm just, I'm okay in this area, no big deal. 
Sometimes you don't know how bad it is until you, until you go. Sometimes you don't know how sick you are until you go for a checkup with a doctor, right? The same goes for spiritual evaluation. Is there stuff from my past? Is there stuff right now? Am I controlling my future? Any of these lords, for Jesus to be the Lord of my life, they all have to go. The gap, because we need to be ready for these results, right? The gap was a space of radical consecration or surrendering of themselves. And the costly work of sacrifice and self-denial is done in that gap. I'm imagining just a, a massive amount of prayer just going on in that upper room before the Holy Spirit fell. Uh, men and women, by the way, Scripture tells us, were in on that prayer meeting, amazing prayer meeting, and the Holy Spirit fell on them, not just the 12, everyone there. Think of situations where you know that without the Holy Spirit, and his difference in your life, you wouldn't make it through. Think of things in your life you know you couldn't have made it through without the Holy Spirit. You know you won't <laughs> unless he's there with you. For us, challenging legal stuff as we adopted our girls, emotional and personal support when we lost our two babies before they could ever be born. Uh, for me, even weight loss and self-image issues over the years. Thinking You've not made a difference in the lives of those who've served in various churches and come to find out later, thank you, Lord, you have. But wondering if you made any kind of difference. Wondering if I'm doing enough to reach people. Wondering if I'm doing enough <laughs> to make disciples. And plugging in that equation, knuckling down, making widgets, oh, excuse me, disciples. <laughs> wondering if I've got stuff. It's got to be God, not you and me. I've got to put the pen in his hand. I've got to take cues from him. I've got to live a consecrated life. As we conclude this morning, I want to invite you to consecrate your heart, your life. Be set apart for his glorious purposes. To do that um, in a moment, I'm going to pray through some words here, and I just want you to think and reflect on them. And if these are true in your heart and life, as we pray together, you can just silently say that to the Lord. I'm not going to ask you yes, no, speak out or that thing, but I want this to be a moment for you and God. So if you bow your heads and close your eyes right now, and uh, we'll just walk through this together. I want you to think, is there some baggage, residue, wounds, or default settings that I need to identify and hand over to you, God? Is there? To not go there anymore by the power of the Holy Spirit, is there something I need to give up of my past? Holy Spirit, reveal that to me today. Chances are he already has. Will you obey? How about right now in the present Am I allowing shame, guilt, ego, arrogance to be the Lord of my life? Think to yourself, Jesus, I know there's only one Lord. Jesus, you do not share lordship 
And so my friend, if you are dealing with something right now in those areas in your present, would you ask him to be Lord of your life? Help him to understand what that means. Help, help you to understand what that means and how to live that out each and every day. And what of your future? Do you submit full control over to Jesus? Will you allow him to write your story? Ask him what your next steps are in life and faithfully follow his guidance revealed by the Holy Spirit. What about your future? Will you lay that down before him? If these things are true in your heart and life, and I pray that you would reflect this, Lord, today as we go from here, I pray for each and every one of my brothers and sisters here today. Would you get into our hearts and lives, our past, present, and future, as you very well did with the disciples in that time between your ascension and your power, that time actually before that, 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 that gap of time where they're praying for your fire to fall. And Holy Spirit, would you come and fill us, not only dealing with the sin issue, but dealing with how we are to live out Christ-likeness in this day, right here and now. We love you, Jesus, and we pray that you would give us your sanctifying grace that in community, Lord, you would help us to know and to live out the life and be made more and more like Christ each and every day. We trust in you. We thank you. In your holy and precious name we pray, amen.